said that a picture is worth a thousand words, and here at Christ Fellowship, a, a picture enables us to get to know one another. And so I know that many of you are aware that we are in the process of putting a pictorial directory together. Uh, there are many new people at Christ Fellowship, and uh, a pictorial directory is a terrific tool uh, that will enable us to get to know one another. The most difficult part of putting a pictorial directory together is getting people to sign up and put on their clothes. I guess you put on clothes every day, right? I didn't come out right. Put on your picture clothes and come and be photographed. And so we have many, many people who have yet to sign up. In fact, the the pastor and his family has not even signed up yet. That's me. Yeah, we're waiting for our daughter, Abby, to get home to figure out what her schedule is going to be like. So May 18, 19, 20, and 21, sign-ups are in the back. I want to, what would be the word, plead with you, beg you, please take time after the service to just sign up quickly, mark it on your calendar. And uh, I was just made aware of this, that you can bring your pet, too. And so here's the offer I will extend to you, and I know this will motivate everyone, is if you would like to borrow our wiener dog, Ginger, you would be more than welcome to borrow Ginger. There's only one problem. She's a chronic shaker, and so your picture will be blurry. So um, I hope the message is loud and clear. We really need to put this together, and uh, so I want to encourage you to sign up uh, after the morning service. I would be remiss if I did not uh, give a, a hearty welcome to Rick and Karen. Uh, we, we miss the Kings a great deal. Uh, the King, I, I miss you an awful lot, and I think that is the, the broad uh, sweep of the church here. We also miss uh, your kids, uh, Steve and Kelly, and, and their kids as well. So it's so good to see you. So can you just come see us every week? That, that, would, that would be terrific. So, Well, I want to invite you to open up God's Word this morning to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Last week, we took a great deal of time to expose the sin of unbelief. You might say it this way. We took the lid off the sin of unbelief. We learned several things. We learned that our hearts are naturally geared to unbelief. Even the youngest child doesn't need any help with unbelief. Why? Because we are sinners by nature and choice. And so our hearts are naturally geared to the sin of unbelief. We learn that unbelief is rooted in the soil of pride. We are are born in this world filled with sin, filled with pride, filled with unbelief. Third, we learn that unbelief is ultimately linked to a hardened heart. For everyone who has a hard heart, inevitably we will learn that that person struggles with unbelief. And at the end of the day, if we summarize everything, we can say this about unbelief. Unbelief is a turning away. Unbelief is an utter rejection of God and His promises. Here is the big takeaway. Here is the big application point that I want to leave you with today. Everyone in this room... From the youngest child to the oldest and most mature adult struggles with the sin of unbelief. I'll put it this way. If you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sin of unbelief actually rules your heart. 
It dominates your decisions. It dictates everything you do. Unbelief in in an unbelieving person militates against God, militates against His all-wise authority and His rightful place to be the Lord of your life. And ultimately, unbelief militates against the Word of Almighty God. But I want to also challenge believers. It is not only unbelievers who struggle with the sin of unbelief. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you too still struggle and battle with the sin of unbelief, albeit in a different way. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as the the final sacrifice for your sin, that you have banked all your hope and future exclusively on Him, you, if you will admit and be honest with yourself and with your church family, from time to time you still struggle with unbelief. That is to say, you struggle believing and assimilating the promises of God. And we've learned this, that when you fail to find satisfaction with all that God is for you in Christ, by definition, you will struggle with unbelief. A general thing I want to share with you this morning is this, is that God is calling everyone He is calling everyone to believe. Every unbeliever is called to believe. Every believer is called upon by God to believe. And so here's a challenge. Whether you are a follower of Christ or you have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you to memorize a a very powerful little verse. Many of you have already committed this to memory, and it's found in the book of Acts. If you would turn there with me, hold your finger in John chapter 12, and look at this very short verse in Acts chapter 6. 16, verse 31. The verse goes like this. Believe, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. For every unbeliever, I want you to to tattoo this verse onto your heart. I want to challenge you to tattoo this verse to your mind, to think about it, to to weigh it out, to think about the implications. What does it mean for me on this day, the first day of May 2016, to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Ask, from what will I be saved? Or better yet, from whom will I be saved if I believe? I want to challenge you with this question. Ask yourself, what are the implications of unbelief? What are the final consequences if I refuse to obey this very important command? For the rest of you who are believers, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you as well to to tattoo this verse onto your heart and onto your mind. And to think about this question. To think about the hour you first believed. You know, John Newton wrote about that. As he sings about amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he writes this line about the hour I first believed. I want to challenge you to think about that. Some of you first believed a few months ago. Some of you first believed a few years ago. There are several of you who first believed a long time ago. 
And so it will be more challenging to think back to the day when you first believed. For me, on July 4th, 1976, when I was seven years old, those of you doing the math, that means I'm 29. But back in 1974, thank you, some of you are awake. But back in 1974, that is when God got a hold of my heart. As I listened to the Word of God proclaimed in a Sunday school class for little kids, I was deathly afraid of going to hell. And so I got on my knees and I told God, I am a sinner. I confess my sin to the living God. And I recognized that it was the Lord Jesus Christ, as Jason said earlier, who lived the life I could never live. And he died a death that I knew, even as a seven-year-old, that I deserved to die because I failed to find all my satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God this morning for saving you from His almighty wrath. Remember when you first believed and thank Him for the amazing gift of eternal life. I want to have you stand with me as we read our passage this morning in John chapter 12, which begins in verse 44. We read it with me. And Jesus cried aloud and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to the end of chapter 12 in John's gospel, we thank you for the, the many things that you have taught us thus far. God, I pray that you would remind us today about the importance of belief, that you would remind us of the importance of saving faith for those who have not yet believed may today be the day of salvation. For the many who are walking with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that today would open up a new vistas of grace that, that we would be able to turn our attention to the past to remember about the richness and the depth of the salvation that is ours in Christ. And that would propel us into the future by your grace and for your glory. God, help us to be teachable today. Help us to hear your word. Help us to respond appropriately to your word. May your spirit guide us into all truth. Illuminate this text before us so that we would understand, that we would comprehend, and that we would respond in a way that glorifies you, the living God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, here in our passage... We find that Jesus continues on this theme where he explores the the crucial aspects of belief or faith and the subject of eternal life. 
And the message that he had for the crowd at that point in redemptive history and the message that he has for each one of us today is literally supercharged with passion and energy. As we look at these words, I want you to detect the, the, not only the passion, but the urgency in his voice. What Jesus has to say is so important. The Bible says this, if you would look at it with me in verse 44. And if you were doing your Bible study or your morning devotions, these would be words that you would be tempted to skip over rather quickly when John writes this, And Jesus cried out and said, I have to confess to you that I almost missed something very important in verse 44. What I nearly missed was the little phrase, cried out. That little phrase, cried out, comes from the Greek word, kradzo. And it's not important that you remember the Greek word, but it's important that you recognize what kradzo means. It means to shout. Look at the verse again. Jesus cries out and says, it is something is coming forth from Jesus is important. So, crazo means to, to shout, to cry out, to cry aloud. It can also be translated as scream, as scream. Parents understand this, don't they? If you have something important to communicate to your children, it is rarely very soft and slow and regimented. Rather, your hands may be moving if you're like me. You're animated. Your voice may raise a bit. It doesn't mean you're angry. It doesn't mean you're upset. But you're passionate about something. There is something important that needs to be demonstrated. You see this in the classroom when a teacher gets worked up, as it were, or excited or filled with passion. That's what this word is designed to communicate, and I almost missed it. The word is found throughout the New Testament, and you don't need to turn there this morning, but let me show you several places where this little word, kradzo, emerges, and I'll show how it is translated. In Matthew 9, verse 27, Jesus passed, uh, passed on from there, and two blind men followed him, crying aloud, kradzo. And they said, have mercy on us, son of David. Do you see what Crozzo is designed to communicate here? Is these blind men, as they saw Jesus, certainly did not say, um, Jesus, come over here, have mercy on us, please. It was Jesus! Please have mercy on us. Do you sense the passion? Do you sense the urgency? Also, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? Hey, Sam, check it out. It's Jesus walking on the water. Hey, Ashley, look. It's Jesus walking on the water. That, that, that makes no sense, does it, Ashley? It'd be like, Ashley, look! It's Jesus! He's walking on the water! I've never seen such a thing. So the Word is designed to communicate this passion, this intensity, this urgency. In Matthew twenty-seven fifty, Jesus himself cries out with a loud voice on the cross, and he yielded his spirit. Matthew 21, 9, we studied this story a few weeks ago 
where the crowds went before Jesus and followed him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so you see what, what is under the surface, as it were, what, what, what John is intending to communicate here in verse 44. Kradzo is a term that should cause us to wake up. Kradzo is a term that should cause us to say, well, Jesus has something really, really important that he wants to communicate. Exactly what was it that caused Jesus to be filled with such zeal and passion and urgency and intensity. We will find in this passage before us that Jesus is passionate about what you believe. He is filled with a sense of urgency about what you and I believe. Well, the title of the message this morning is Straight Talk About Faith. And Jesus says, really, in so many words, that what you believe matters. You know, I think we find ourselves in a culture, we find ourselves in a culture where belief simply doesn't matter anymore. Believe whatever you want to believe. What's fine for you is fine for you. What's fine for me is fine for me. Moral relativism. I saw an interview just a few weeks ago conducted on the campus at University of Washington, and it had to do with the gender debate as it relates to bathrooms. And this young man, as he interviewed these bright, intelligent college students who know where they're going, had no clue about reality as they talked about the gender issue. And one of the things that was the dominant theme that I saw emerging in this series of interviews coming from the students was this. It would be wrong for me to tell you that you're mistaken. It would be inappropriate for me to tell you that you're wrong. Have you seen that in culture? Is anyone getting tired of it? It's what the philosophers call moral relativism. And we have, we have started to sled down the icy slopes of relativism. Who would have thought that we would have this bathroom controversy in the state of Washington? That is not a political statement. That is a statement about the nature of reality and how God has created us. And so I can say again, what you believe matters. What you believe has eternal consequences. And so this morning, as we examine the nature of belief and the nature of saving faith and make this distinction about what you believe matters, I want to draw your attention to three very important elements of this subject. First, I want you to look with me at the components of belief. We'll take a few moments to look at the components of belief, and then I want to move on and have you look with me at the concern about belief, and then finally, the commandment about belief. First of all, the components of belief. There are seven things I want to highlight very quickly. First, the first component of belief is that we are to acknowledge that Jesus is who he claims he is. You know very well that Jesus claims 
to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Savior of the world. Well, you recall the story where he stands before a very important man. The man's name was Pontius Pilate. And Pilate says to Jesus, it's one of the most interesting sections of Scripture that I have ever seen in my life. Pilate stands before Jesus, inches away, nose to nose, and he has the audacity to say to Jesus, So you're a king? And Jesus answers in only the way that Jesus could answer. You say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And in some of the most penetrating words you could ever lay your eyes upon, Pilate responds with these words. What is truth? And inches before his nose stood the embodiment of truth, the essence of truth, the way, the truth, and the life, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. And we all know the end of the story is that Pontius Pilate released Jesus to be crucified. Pontius Pilate struggled mightily with the sin of unbelief. You see, he failed to acknowledge that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Look at verse 45. And whoever sees me, Jesus says, sees him, that is the Father, who sent me. The second component of belief I want you to see is that we are to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is sent from God. Jesus came, as the scriptures tell us, to obey the will of the Father who sent him. He came on a rescue mission. He came to bear witness to the Father. He came as light and he seeks to deliver his sheep who are lost in darkness. He came, as we will see in a few minutes in verse 50, to deliver a very, very important commandment. Number three, I want you to see that this belief involves the repudiation of darkness. The repudiation of darkness. Verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So I want to draw your attention to the word remain. That means to, to stay or abide. Young people would say this word means to hang, right? To chill out, something like that. Jesus says once again, this is why I've come into the world. I've come as light, so whoever believes in me may not linger, you might say, in the darkness, it means to continue in a state or a given activity. In this case, it means to, to stay deadlocked in a condition of darkness. And darkness, of course, means the, the realm and the domain of sin. In John 8, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. And then once again in John 12, he says, The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. We looked at that last week. And so Jesus came into the world as light so that whoever believes in him would, would not be trapped by the confines of darkness anymore. 
Simply put, the person who believes in Jesus, the person who places his or her faith in Jesus, has been ransomed from the darkness. Listen to how Paul describes this amazing reality in Colossians 1, verse 13. He, that is, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. See, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are no longer chilling out in the darkness. You're no longer hanging out in the darkness. You are no longer trapped by the darkness. Now you know where you're going. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. If you walk in the darkness, you can't even see the path. If you walk in the darkness, you have no desire to be drawn to the light. You love, as Jesus says, the darkness. Well, there's a fourth component of this belief that we're referring to, and that involves, it involves obeying Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, we will get there, Lord willing, someday. And many of you have talked to me about this, and I I cannot wait for the day we begin to study the book of Romans together. But in verse 5 in chapter 1, Paul talks about something that's what he calls the obedience of faith. You see, there are some in our culture, there are some in the church, there are some pastors, there are some theologians who believe that you can trust Jesus but never believe Jesus, and nothing could be further from the truth. If you believe Jesus, by definition, you entrust yourself to him. If you believe Jesus by definition, you are a person who on a daily basis turns from sin. You repent. Notice I did not say you stop sinning. First John's very clear on this, that if anyone says he has no sin, he's a what? He's a liar. And the truth is not in him. And so as people who wrestle with unbelief, as people who battle the sin of unbelief, what do we do with it? We face in the direction of the cross and we say, God, I'm struggling again with the sin of X, Y, Z. You fill in the blank. I'm struggling with the sin of anger unrighteous anger. I'm struggling with the sin of fear. I'm struggling with the sin of lust. I'm struggling with the sin of jealousy. I'm struggling, God, just to trust you. Will you forgive me? And the promise that we have is that the Lord Jesus Christ is our defense attorney. And our defense attorney is always working pro bono. That is, his work for us on our behalf is free. See, it scares me to death to ever have to call an attorney and ask for his or her services. Wow, it is expensive. The Lord Jesus Christ offers the best service, if you will, in all the universe. And he pleads our case to the Father. And the Father, on the basis of Jesus' completed work on the cross, forgives us. You see... Belief, saving faith, implies obeying Jesus Christ and submitting to his authority. In John chapter 15, we'll get there someday. It says this, By by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. You see, a fruitless Christian is a contradiction. A fruitless Christian actually 
is not a Christian. So by definition, we obey, we repent, we bear good fruit to the glory of God. Number five, I want you to see that, as we've already indicated, that, involve, that, that faith involves trusting Jesus. Faith involves entrusting ourselves to the Savior. Number six, everyone who believes Jesus now believes in God. Once again, in verse 44, Jesus, Krodzo, he cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus' statement in verse 44 emphasizes the impossibility of believing in the Father apart from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, I want you to see that belief involves acknowledging that you need to be saved from your sins. It's not important to name names this morning, but the vast majority of you have heard reports over the last, oh, several months of one person in particular who has said quite publicly that I've never asked God to forgive me of my sins. Could I say this humbly and graciously? If you ever run into someone who says, I've never asked God to forgive me of my sins, make for certain that person has not been forgiven of his or her sins. It's a very important thing to recognize. Such a decision would be the most fatal mistake that any person could ever make. What about you? As you consider the the components of belief, do these components match your life? Do you acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he really is? Do you acknowledge that Jesus Christ has been sent by God to be the Savior of the world? Have you repudiated the darkness? Do Do you know where you're going? Or have you brokered a deal with the world? Have you sold your soul to the devil, as it were? Or is your passion to obey the living, God, <coughs> the living God? Do you trust Jesus? And finally, have you acknowledged your sin to a holy God who, who pleads with you to forgive or who, who, is, who is embracing the notion that he will forgive your every sin if you turn from your sin? This is the promise of Scripture. If you confess your sin... He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So once again, what you believe matters. It matters now and it matters in eternity. I want to turn your attention now from the components of belief and move to the concern with belief. Look quickly at verse 46 and 47. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The first thing I want you to see here, and it is patently obvious, is this. Is that some people, some people do not believe. Some people do not believe. Some people in the crowd, I would argue many people in the crowd, failed to believe in Jesus. Throughout history, many have failed to believe in Jesus. In this crowd today, there are some who still fail to believe 
in Jesus. And of course, Jesus says that if you fail to believe in me, you walk in darkness. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So I I want you to do this with me, and this is for believers and non-believers alike. I want you to, to put on a new set of glasses. Some of you know that I one of my hobbies is cycling, and I like to cycle, especially in the evening. And to protect my eyes, I wear some really cool sunglasses, right? They look cool. Yeah, they make me look stronger than I am, right? But if I, at this point in, in the month of May, if I cycle too late into the evening, it becomes very difficult for me to see. And so I need to either take my glasses off or put a new hair on that has different lenses that's not quite as dark. What happens is this, as I cycle and I take the dark lenses off and it's about 8 or 8.15, all of a sudden I can actually see. I can actually see. And so let's take off those lenses so that we can see the reality of what sacred scripture reveals. I want to ask, what are the, the effects of the darkness? For every person who has failed to believe Jesus, once again, that person, according to Jesus, is walking in the darkness. What are the effects of the darkness? The first thing is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I debated on whether or not to walk quickly or slowly through this section. And actually, early this morning, uh, the verdict was quickly. But about 20 minutes ago, that changed to slowly, right? So let's do it slowly. The first effect of the darkness is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and it goes like this. The natural person, that is the unconverted person, the person who is walking in the dark, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Some of you know that I, want to, I have another hobby besides cycling. I love to read and review books. And most of the books, as Frank knows, most of the books that I review are, are very positive, and I, I say lots of nice things about the authors. From time to time, I'll run across a book that is not a good book. And I will review the book, and, and some critical things may need to be said. Well, one of these books, written by a man who professes to be a believer... Filled with heresy, I received word from one of my friends, and he asked me, he said, how could a person who claims to be a Christian say that? Well, the answer would be because the person's not a Christian. That's the bottom line. But what we need to recognize here in verse 14, when it says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, that does not mean they are a a dumb person. That does not mean they're not intelligent. They can be more intelligent than all of us put together, you see. You see, there are scholars and theologians and people in in academia who have more degrees than Fahrenheit that that run run all the way through the the end of the longest book. They have more education than all is put together, and they still can be unconverted. That is to say, you can be intelligent and unconverted, and that's what verse 14 indicates, and that is you can be blind to the truth. You can proclaim the truth. 
You can write about the truth. You can talk about the truth. You can pontificate about the truth. But the net effect of darkness to the unconverted person is that he or she is blind to the truth. Go back with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 18. And the reason I chose to walk slowly through this section is because I want you to see the scriptures. I want you to see the futility of a person who is walking in the dark. Romans chapter 3 verse 18 says this, Therefore, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If you are here today and you are walking in the dark, the word of God says you don't fear him. You don't love him. You don't serve him. You fail to fear the great God of the universe. Flip back with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and look with me at verse 34. A verse that we've looked at many times before that bears repeating. Jesus says in John eight thirty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What Jesus is referring to here now is the man or the woman who walks in darkness. This is the person who's not a believer. This is the person who is utterly unconverted. And if you're unconverted, the scriptures say you're a slave to sin. Additionally, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, there are actually several things. And I want to linger here for a moment. We see in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 that the unconverted person is dead in trespasses and sins. They are dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, Paul continues, in which you once walked. Notice, this is written to believers. This is what we were formerly like before we trusted Jesus for salvation. Following the course of this world, Paul says in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is to say, we, if we are children of the dark, are following the lead of Lucifer. We are following the lead of Diabolos. That is to say, we are following the lead of the devil. Verse 3 says that we are living according to the flesh if we are children of the darkness. Verse 3, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is a common belief that you hear a lot in our culture, and the belief goes something like this. We are all children of God. We are all children of God. The Bible says the opposite. We are not all children of God. Rather, apart from grace, we are children of wrath. Children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 goes on to say that we are separated from Christ, that we are strangers to the covenants of promise if we are walking in the darkness. Ephesians 2.12 also says that we have no hope, that we are without God in the world, that we are far from God. Turn to one other scripture with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And 
I'll jump up to verse 6 quickly where Paul says, we, While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us. Those of us who are cellar dwellers, those of us who are children of darkness, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then Paul includes this, really a summary statement here. He says, therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we see here that apart from grace, if we are children of the darkness, we are not children of God, we are enemies of God. We are enemies of God. We've seen the components of belief. We've seen the concern with belief. I want to conclude this morning by drawing your attention back in John chapter 12 with the command to believe. The command to believe. Read with me beginning in verse 48. Jesus says, The one who rejects me, and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I want to have you look with me at four brief things, and we will close. First, the command here, the imperative here, is to receive eternal life. Way back in John chapter 3, verse 15, we are told that whoever believes in Jesus would have eternal life. The subject for Table Talk in the month of May, and I couldn't be more thrilled to say on May 1, the Table Talks are gone. This is the first time since we started receiving table talks, I think, that, that are gone on the first day. There have been other months where there are 10 or 15 or 20 left. And so, as BJ said, good for you for faithfulness and your obedience to God. I would say good for you for picking up a table talk, for having a passion to study God's Word. Well, the topic of discussion is John 3.16 and Table Talk this month. And John 3.16, as you know, says that God so loved the world that whoever that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Jesus says later in John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him. I want you to mark that in the back of your mind. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. Second, I want you to see, as we've already indicated, that some people reject 
the command to believe. They reject the command to believe. As Jesus states in verse 48, that word reject is a word that means to declare invalid. Isn't that interesting? For every person who fails to believe Jesus, when they reject Jesus, they say, Jesus, your word is invalid. It means to set aside. It means to spurn a commandment. The one who rejects Jesus also rejects the one who sent him. So says Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. You ask, Pastor, why would anyone reject this God-man who lived the life that I could never live and died the death that I deserve to die? Why would anyone turn down this marvelous gift? Why would anyone say, I cast a vote of no confidence on you, Jesus? Why would someone refuse such a wonderful gift? And the answer is clear in Scripture. They reject the gift of salvation because they love the darkness more. They reject the gift of salvation because they love to do wicked things. They hate the light. They are fearful that their sin will one day be exposed. And Jesus addresses this matter in John 3.20, where he says that everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Number three, people who reject the command to believe, Jesus says, will be judged. People who reject the command to believe will be judged. We hear writers, the former pastor, most notably a man like Rob Bell, who says the opposite. Who says the opposite. The scripture is clear. All who reject the command to believe will be judged. In his earthly ministry, Jesus says he does not come to judge people. He came to actually save them. But in the days to come, we know this, that Jesus will judge every unbeliever. Jesus will judge the unrepentant. I believe I mentioned last week that we teach our children to memorize John 3.16, but for some reason we missed verse 36 in John chapter 3 that says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, to believe and to obey, those terms are synonymous. If I believe Jesus, my passion is to obey Jesus. And so Paul says in Romans 2.8, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath, and fury. Finally, I want you to see that as Jesus uses the word receive, and the Apostle John loves to use the word receive, as you know. In John chapter 1, verse 12, John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You say, what does it mean? And it's kind of a jingle, actually. To receive is to... Someone help me. To receive is to... Believe. Once again, to all who have received him, 
who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. To receive is to believe. This is straight talk about faith. And we engage in straight talk about faith. We ask straight questions. And so the straight questions are as follows. Do you receive Jesus today or do you reject Jesus today? See, there's, there's two kinds of people that have come to Christ's fellowship. There are some who receive, and those who receive will receive eternal life. And there are others who reject, and those who reject will receive eternal punishment and condemnation. This morning, do you seek Jesus, or do you spurn Jesus? In whom do you place your trust? I love it when I get in conversations with people, especially at coffee. It goes something like this. Well, I'm not really a person of faith. I love it when people say that to me. Because nothing could be further from the truth. Do you know I've never met a person who is not a person of faith? Every boy, every girl, every man, every woman is a person of faith. The question is, in whom or what do you place your faith? This is straight talk about faith. Everyone has faith. The question we need to resolve in our mind is in whom or what do we place our faith? This is the urgent message that the Lord Jesus Christ proclaims. This is why he cried out those life-changing words about belief. And I don't want you to leave this morning and miss the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus, at the end of the day, reveals the heart of God. And what is the heart of God? God, our Father, is a sending God. God, our Father, loves us. And He loves us so much, He sent Jesus to be the light of the world and pay a price on Calvary's cross for the sins of every person who would ever believe. I want to offer two challenges this morning. The first is to Christians, and obviously the vast majority of you this morning are Christ followers. If you're a Christian this morning and you have received the gift of salvation... Once again, I want to have you take just a moment and thank the living God for your salvation. You know, the song was written by Martin Smith many years ago. He used to be in the Christian man Delirious in the UK. And the song goes, and we've sung it several times, I believe. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? What can I say? The answer is, I got nothing except Thank you. Would you take a moment and thank Jesus for the salvation that he has granted to you? And then if you're a Christian today, I want to ask a very practical question and challenge you with this. Is how does saving faith make a difference in your world this week? How does being a Christ follower make a difference where you work How does being a Christ follower make a difference where you attend school? What does being a Christ follower look like on the baseball diamond? What does being a Christ follower look like wherever you are in the marketplace of ideas? Finally, for non-believers, if you're here and you are choosing willingly to reject Jesus instead of receive Jesus, I want to challenge you to think about the implications of being blind to the truth 
of having no fear of God, of being a slave to sin, of being dead in sin and trespasses. I want you to think about the implications of following the lead of Diabolos, following the lead of Lucifer, and living according to the flesh, being a a child of wrath, being a stranger to the promises of Christ and the covenants of promise, being a person who has no hope. When I do evangelism, when I share the gospel, whether it's in a sermon like this or whether it's one-on-one with a person, this is what I have in my mind. I'm talking to a person who is put together, who looks good, who has a great portfolio, who has goals, who has ambition, who has it all together seemingly. But in my mind, I think this is a person who has zero hope. And that is a counterintuitive thing to say in our culture. When you say to a person, as I'm saying to you now, if you do not believe in Jesus, if you refuse to receive Jesus, you can be put together and have a portfolio and have more degrees in Fahrenheit and be the greatest person around. But the Bible says you have no hope. You're an enemy of God. And the plea I would offer today is flee to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Turn the reins of your life over to Jesus. That's what's called straight talk about faith. And sometimes straight talk about faith gets preachers in trouble. There have been men throughout church history who were willing to talk straight about faith. Men like Polycarp. He lost his life. Men like William Tyndale, he lost his life. Men like John Huss, he lost his life. Others who are willing to talk straight about faith, and they may not have died as a martyr, but it cost them. Men like Martin Luther, men who are willing to talk straight about faith. And so I I plead with you, I challenge you, if you are rejecting Jesus, the Bible says today, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, for helping us to see that you are ascending God, that your heart is for every tribe and every nation, every people group. Uh, Thank you for setting your affection on us who believe and on those who have yet to believe I pray, God, that today would be the day of salvation for someone. Perhaps there's someone here who has been a church attender for years and years, who has played some kind of a religious game, but has never truly turned from their sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps today would be the day of salvation. God, I ask that by your spirit, you would draw your sheep to yourself. For Christian people today, God, would you give us the courage to live in the marketplace of ideas like people who are blood-bought disciples? I pray that you would give us opportunity to bear witness to the gospel. I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that we would be enabled and willing to live out the faith that you have granted us. God, I pray that we would make a difference in this community and beyond 
the confines of this community. So, so you would be glorified so that people would find their treasure in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.